This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there. I hope your Monday is going well. Today and just after half past 12 today, taking a look at the future of the Russia-Ukraine grain deal. It all comes to an end on Saturday. And what does that mean for the world? And what does it mean for growers here in Western Australia? Grain prices in particular. Jason Craig is going to be here live on the show. He is the Chief Marketing and Trading Officer with the CBH Group. So shoot through a thought on the text if you've got one for him. 0448922604. Also today, Elders Managing Director Mark Allison says he's going to be leaving the role this time next year. The profits are really good, but the share price of Elders has really taken a tumble today. We'll take a closer look at that shortly. Just before one, the results of the Mushay cattle market for you. To start today, though, a draft report by the Productivity Commission says it's time to introduce regulation to stop port terminal operators charging trucking companies exorbitant fees to deliver or collect a container. In some cases, the fees charged to the transport operators have risen from zero to as much as $160 a container. Stephen King is presiding commissioner for the inquiry into Australia's maritime logistics system. Stephen, what was the catalyst to this inquiry? The government asked the Productivity Commission to look at the performance of our port system and we're focused in on the container ports because that's where the vast majority of interest has been. And there's really been a couple of drivers by that. First, a lot of uh, industrial disruption on the ports, uh, particularly during 2020, coming into 2021. Secondly, an international report from the World Bank putting our container ports, our major container ports, which includes Fremantle, in the bottom part of the world in terms of their performance, so the the laggards, if I can call them that. And, And the third part is that we'd seen some big increases in fees being charged by the terminal operators at container ports. So when you go to pick up a container, Fees being put in place that had risen up from pretty close to zero to around 160 bucks a container, which were causing just extra problems for importers and exporters. All of those drove us to look at ports and to look at container ports. Well, maybe if we just hone in on those costs in particular, what was the, the, some of the reasons behind some of those huge increases that you're highlighting? Yeah, um, there's lots of excuses that have been put forward by the container terminal operators. In Western Australia, you've got uh, Fremantle, you've got Patrick and you've got DP World. They've come out and said, well, we need this extra money on the land side to um, justify new land side investment. Uh, As far as we can tell, there's just no relationship between them pushing up these fees and investing. They've claimed, well, look, we need to get more money off the trucking companies and off the land side because uh, we're getting uh, squeezed by the shipping lines. Possibly true, but you know, being squeezed by the shipping lines isn't an excuse to rip off the trucking companies and the importers and the exporters. So our view is quite simply, they've got market power on the land side and they've started using it. And that's seen the fees go up to you know, around 160 bucks a container. Well, just on that point, one of the report's recommendations is that regulations should be established that prevent container terminal operators from charging 
the transport operators any fixed fees associated with delivering or collecting a container. Why have you reached that conclusion? Okay, so you've really got to ask why is there a market power problem? And the reason is that if you're an Australian exporter, you're an Australian importer, you don't have a contract directly with the terminal. You have a contract with a shipping line or sometimes you have a contract with an overseas party that has a contract with a shipping line. It's a shipping line that chooses which terminal operator to use, whether it's DP World or Patrick or over on the East Coast, Hutchison or Vict. They're the ones who have the contract. So the market power occurs because when you get told as an exporter, oh, go down to this container operator to drop off your container for export, you have no choice. That choice has been made by someone else. Or if you're an importer and you get told, look, head down to the Patrick terminal to pick up your container, you've got no choice. You can't go to DP World. They don't have your container. Only Patrick has your container. So the problem there is that you're essentially, your containers are being held to ransom. That's not a good outcome. It leads to this market power. And our recommendation is that these fees, these fixed fees, can only be charged to the party that actually has the contract with the terminal. And that's a shipping line. It's not the importer or the exporters. Now, John Orr from Premium Grains, who we spoke to here on the Country Hour a little while ago, he said that his fees have gone up dramatically in the last couple of years and they continue to rise. And he says it's a pure result of oligopoly power and a failure of market to price that service. Would you agree with that conclusion? I'd probably be uh, even blunder than John. I'd say just because you literally have no choice. When you are an exporter or an importer and you're told, here's the terminal you've got to drop off your container or here's the stevedore, the container terminal that has your container, you have no choice. There is no competition. It wouldn't matter if there were 20 stevedores operating at Fremantle. You still wouldn't have a choice because only one of them would have your container and you can't go anywhere else to get your container. So I think... It's not a matter of competitive failure. It's just a straight situation of market power because the party who's making the choice isn't the party who's being forced to pay these fees. And John was also saying that there's nothing really to stop these fees to the transporters from just going up and up and up. At the moment, John's exactly right. We did have a question in our interim report. We asked, well, why did these fees only start really accelerating up around 2017. Uh, We haven't had a great response to that. We haven't had a great answer. But I think the real risk is now that the container terminal operators, the stevedores, now that they have worked out that there's a golden goose there called terminal access fees charged to the transport companies, they're just going to keep milking that golden goose. And yes, I think the fees could go up further from where they are. This is The Country Hour. It is 12 past 12. Today, talking to Productivity Commissioner Stephen King about a draft report that's recommending regulation be introduced to stop port terminal operators charging the trucking companies a lot of money in terms of fees to deliver or collect a container. Now, Stephen, clearly an exporter like John Orr from Premium Grains is interested in these fees. They add to his costs and reduce his competitiveness. But it also has an impact on the importers, on the goods that you and I want to buy, things like cars or a lounge suite, for example. 
And I guess that's where this issue becomes important to the general public because ultimately it's going to mean shoppers pay more for their goods. Yeah, exactly right, Belinda. It's sometimes put to us, oh, well, you know, it's the trucking companies or the transport operators. They're the ones that pay. You know, they should be contributing. No, no, no. Let's get this right. It's the exporters and it's the like the farmers and it's the consumers on the import side. They're the ones who pay. Nobody else pays these fees. So whenever a terminal access charge goes up, it means less money in the pockets of our farmers as exporters. And it means on the import side, the consumers will be paying more. It's as simple as that. Do you get a sense of where the port of Fremantle ranks around Australia? Because we've got, we've spoken to exporters. One comes to mind immediately, Wamco. It's a, a, a lamb processor and exporter. And the chilled product, it's better to sort of truck it or train it across to the eastern states ports rather than rely on Fremantle to get the product out. Obviously, it's got a, a shelf life, so they want to get it out as, as soon as possible. Um, so they've been doing that for a while now because they just don't want to deal with Fremantle, so it's better to go east. Where does Fremantle yeah. rank? Do you know? It, it really depends on the measure. Fremantle's not the best operating port in Australia, but it's also not the worst. But it also does depend on how uh, you look at it. Fremantle's also in the situation where you are moving ports in a sense you, you've got the project of Westport coming on board so it, it's a port that perhaps isn't getting the investment that you would otherwise expect but that's not necessarily a bad thing you don't want to be investing a lot of money in a port when you're saying well hang on we're building a new port at the same time so from Antle, not where it should be if it was going to be the long-term port for Western Australia but that's not where what's happening we're going to end up you're going to have a new port in the West and hopefully that will be operating at world's best practice. When are you expecting a response from government to some of your key recommendations, in particular the one that we've focused on here uh, in our conversation today about those um, fees and charges to the transport operators and your recommend, uh, recommendation that that just shouldn't be happening? That uh, was our interim report or our draft report that had that initial recommendation. We've taken... More submissions, we've had public hearings. We're still interested from hearing from people. So if you're interested in talking with us about this issue, please get online, pc.gov.au, look up Maritime Inquiry, and you'll see that you're able to put in comments or submissions. But <laughs> time is pretty short. We will be giving our final report and our final recommendations to government before Christmas. And because you've been so strong on this particular point about the fees being charged to the transporters, are you confident that that recommendation will see the light of day and the government will support it? Well, it's pretty clear that around all Australian states, something will be done. Most states have started already thinking about how to act on those charges. I think we're going to see more of that. For example, Victoria put in place a protocol, a pricing protocol for the terminal access charges. There's been talk about that going national, that's currently voluntary. Maybe it should be made mandatory. There's a bunch of things on the table there. And yes, I, I do think we'll see action in this space because the charges at the moment are, are an impost on every Australian importer and exporter. And, and I just can't see government just letting it be. Stephen, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for being part of the Country Hour. 
No, thank you, Belinda. That is Productivity Commissioner Stephen King. 17 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Elders Managing Director Mark Allison has announced he's going to leave the role by this time next year. The news comes as the agribusiness company reported an increase in profits this year, $163 million. Mark Allison reflects on his 10 years at the helm of Elders. The things I'm most proud of, it's seeing Elders people being able to uh, contribute back into regional rural Australia, supporting local communities, funding uh, you know, sports organisations in local communities, investing in ag tech to help agriculture. And uh, you know, we've been the most trusted brand in agriculture for the last three years. You know, 183 years later, that's, that's quite an important uh, part of our DNA and what we actually do. Shareholders have clearly done very, very well through the period. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, we're have we set for growth now into the future. Well, those shareholders didn't like hearing the news that Elders Managing Director Mark Allison will be stepping down next year. The share price dropped about 19.7% today, and that was a short while ago anyway. But let's take a look at Elders' profits this year. As I mentioned, profits are up 9% to $163 million for the year. Mark Allison says there are a few reasons why profits were so good this year. You know, from the market, when we look at how much of our upside comes out of better seasonal conditions, uh, our, our analysis showed us about 47% and 53%. So the, um, so 53% came of our, out of our self-help and things we can control. And we tend to kind of work on the things we can control, not, not what comes out of the sky or commodity prices or, or wars in Ukraine, etc. There's a fairly healthy margin, though, that's that's been required to, to achieve those those profits at a time when, when inputs are costing an increasing amount. Uh, to have a, a profit before tax of 42% and a profit after tax of 9%, uh, costs a concern? Our cost to serve has uh, reduced during this period. So uh, because we've been growing at a faster rate, obviously, than the, what we're putting costs in. But, but it's something we... Uh, costs uh, in terms of running costs... Uh, we watch very closely. In terms of the costs of fertiliser, crop protection, animal health, I mean, largely we, we don't manufacture them. So we buy at the high cost and then we sell. Our margin, particularly for some of the crop prote- uh, protection products, has reduced uh, because uh, you know, it's a competitive market, so, so we can't just mark up any price we want to. It, it, it'll depend what competitors are, are selling for and what the market price is. So, so yeah, I think... Uh, by backward integrating, we've been able to get a little bit more of the margin, but it's still been very, very tight. And, and our, the drop in our cash conversion was around the increased costs of, uh, of big parts of our inventory. The margin is, is already slimming, as you've said there. Is there going to become a cap where the, the market can't accept any more price rises? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the outlook for uh, fertiliser prices is, is uh, a little different. I think for crop protection, it looks like it's uh, it's uh, softening. So supply-demand means prices uh, are uh, softening, which is great for everyone. But, but I, I think that the way, you know, just from uh, being around for a little while, what I've seen is that particularly if, if it's crop and there's high returns by putting the crop in, if, if they're high commodity prices and high input prices, it's kind of okay because you're investing more to get more. Uh, the problem is, and that's the current scenario, that's, that's the current scenario, if there are high input prices and low commodity prices, you send, tend to get a, um, a reduction of inputs. So I think it depends on the, uh, 
depends on the market. But, but from our view, from my viewpoint, I mean, we, we support regional rural Australia. We do our best to keep uh, prices as low as possible. It costs us much more. You know, we pass it on as much as per with the competitive situation. And uh, we do our best to have product available for uh, people so they can, they can plant or whatever, or spray pests or fungal, fungal activity or whatever. You made a big investment in wool handling this year. What was that and why? We've moved to a, uh, an automated uh, wool handling facility for, uh, for uh, Eastern Australia and also uh, with less technology in Western Australia. And our thinking there is that yeah, it's a $25 million investment. And again... Wool is core DNA for elders, uh, and uh, no one's invested in uh, in wool for many, many years. But, but our thinking is that this is our core business; these are our core clients, and uh, we believe we can add significant efficiency to the supply chain through that investment. A recession could be on the cards, though. The GFC almost bankrupted elders. How will elders ride out a potential economic downturn if that does come to pass? If this this war does continue, for example. Yeah, well, it's a completely different business to the elders that got caught in the GFC. So in terms of debt, like where our leverage is 1.2, we've got massive headroom. We're generating, generating yeah, hundreds of millions of uh, cash. One of the hallmarks of the last uh, nine years with the Apple plans is financial discipline, not overextending, not getting caught, not doing things that don't fit the core kill play agribusiness strategy. So there is a high degree of discipline that we've uh, introduced. So, so I think... Uh, yeah, well, we're we're a long way from anywhere close to having a distressed balance sheet or any issues like that. And on the, if there is a recession, I mean, people still need to eat. Agriculture still moves. We've got across. Now, in our real estate businesses, uh, interest rates have uh, impacted regional rural real estate. At the same time, a quarter of our uh, of our uh, real estate business is actually uh, property management, and so that's improved significantly as people are renting more. Elders Managing Director Mark Ellison with Cassie Huff. 23 past 12, shortly checking in with the newsroom and then looking at the weather conditions around Western Australia. First, though, ongoing flooding in the eastern states could cause ongoing supply issues for all sorts of fresh and frozen fruit and vegetables. And that means for many of you, a lot of prices will go up or stay up for a while now. Nathan Richardson is a farmer who chairs the Tasmanian Vegetable Council. He says there's now a real strain on many eastern states' farmers. Right from Queensland to Tasmania, it's uh, in most growing regions have had been affected um, with some weather event. And uh, depending on when it strikes, it's either really bad, delays in, in northern Australia harvesting. And, you know, we've, we've lost critical planting windows through every major growing region in Australia uh, in the last few months and you can't make that up. The four, We have four seasons and, uh, you know, you can't go back in time and plant our seed. It doesn't work. What sort of uh, produce are you talking about there across the regions? You name it, basic, basically everything. Uh, leafy greens, uh, all your processing vegetables, um, above and below ground crops, Every, everything has been affected and then you throw in the the tightening labour market and um, all those issues. So it's going to be hard to guarantee those at the normal windows of harvest, normal harvest windows? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so particularly here in Tasmania, we, we basically had the whole month of October where there was no crops planted and that also limits your processing capacity and 
what that can also do is is it puts pressure on other crops that are grown that have to get through that factory as well. So everything matures at different times, but when we, when we have adverse weather events, that can bring on maturity. And so while you're waiting for one crop, the next crop's racing in because it's had better conditions. And uh, it, it could be a double whammy here in Tasmania for, for rain-affected crops clashing with with later sown crops that are, that have could uh, hypothetically bloom in, in the later season. So not to sound alarmist, but, um, you know, we're a long way from getting anything in the back of a truck yet. It's only the second week of November. We've got to get through the next 50 to 60 days relatively smoothly. Of course, you don't know what's what weather's coming, but we really need good conditions now. Really do. It's really important. Chair of the Tasmanian Vegetable Council, Nathan Richardson, speaking to Fiona Breen about fruit and vegetable supplies and prices. Frozen vegetable processor Simplot says it's still evaluating the effects of recent rains, but acknowledges cumulative factors will probably lead to an increase in demand for frozen produce, which may mean you'll find it harder to find frozen produce in the supermarket freezers. And as far as potatoes go, McCain says while it's been a challenging time for potato growers, the company doesn't anticipate recent rainfall across Tasmania will affect its ability to supply customers in the immediate future. And earlier in the year, you heard Western Australia's potato growers saying they'd reached a crisis point because potato prices weren't high enough to account for rising input costs for things like fertiliser, chemicals and labour. Simon Moltoni is Executive Officer of the Potato Growers Association and says since then there have been small price increases, but they're just not enough. Uh, not, not a lot has changed. We've seen some small increases in returns to growers, probably around 25% of the actual increase in costs that we've experienced um, through the supply chain issues due to COVID, etc. So, so there has been some slight changes as far as returns go, but is but uh, nowhere near enough to cover off the um, losses. So, so this has forced growers to look very closely at their operations, of course, uh, and we have had some growers choosing not to plant, and others who have cut back, and then. Others who have, you know, we look for, I guess, safer areas, less risk, you know, by variety, etc. So growers are doing everything they can to make sure that they can fill the market without exposing themselves to uh, too many losses, to, you know, a simple risk minimising exercise. So how much roughly are growers asking for and, and what, are they, what are they being told? Well, WA is no different to the rest of the country and the rest of the world, really, in these these times. And we've we've found that other states, other jurisdictions, the cost is around two hundred dollars a ton. Wherever we go across all sectors, it seems to be, you know, up to that that mark. And and um, you know, we haven't received anywhere near that amount um, return. Now, that's not a that's not a demand or an increase. You know, it's not a increase in pay request. That's that's just simply covering costs that have occurred outside the control of growers um, in order to try and maintain profitability. Um, And we heard on Friday that there's a chip shortage in WA, so I'm talking about hot chips. What's that all about? And Do you think it's been blown out of proportion? 
Well, I, I hope we don't have a supply of a, a shortage because uh, I'm, a, I'm a great lover of uh, <laughs> Me too. I love my hot in chips particular, on WA chips because uh, they they are the best and they've they're award winning. So look, I hope not. I do know that uh, the the West Australian growers have been able to negotiate a price increase with with the processor in Manjima. Well, how suitable that is or not, I'm sure every, there'll be different perspectives, but at least there's been some movement there, which which is positive. And I would hope that um, we don't run short of chips in WA. Bearing in mind that uh, they, only, they only really supply a, a small segment of the market by comparison to the big you know, corporations, international corporations that supply uh, major you know, McDonald's, etc., um, and uh, the retailers. So that, that normally comes from the East Coast or overseas. So, so look, West Australian growers will be doing their best to, to supply all of the processors' requirements. Um, and then there have been issues, of course, on the East Coast with floods in particular – um, and that will certainly have some effect, I, w- I would think. And this question's probably difficult to answer, Simon, in the time limit, but what's next from here? What's the solution, do you think? Specifically for potatoes, look, I, I think the overall market, once we get out of the La Nina effect and we get a little more stability in the in the vegetable market, you know, the $10 lettuces have gone and, you know, the other lines come back into reasonable supply, some of that pressure will, will come off, hopefully. Um, but as far as as far as potatoes go, I mentioned before that the price doesn't seem to move, and everybody's very cynical about that. These increases in, in costs that we we've seen, that's it, that's a hard increase. That's not a peak. It's a it's a new baseline for um, cost of production. So I think we really need to see a reset at the retail level of the price of potatoes. I'm sure consumers don't want to hear this, but potatoes represent outstanding value. And if we could see a, a move of perhaps 50 cents a kilo at the retail level and we could get, you know, a respectable amount of that passed back to our members, then we would we'd be able to secure the um, supply going forward and the uh, livelihoods and businesses of our members. Executive Officer of the Potato Growers Association, Simon Moltoni, talking to Georgia Hargreaves. It is 29 to 1 and Herlin Corr is in the studio. What's happening in the headlines, Herlin? Good afternoon, Belinda. Making news today, Amnesty International Australia says it's disgusted to see what children are subjected to in WA's Bangsia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre. Footage from the facility shows dangerous restraining practices are still being used. There's been continued criticism over conditions at Bangsia Hill, especially the practice of sending hard-to-handle youths to an adult maximum security jail. The Australian Nursing Federation says it it expects rolling stoppages to cause massive disruption at Perth hospitals over the next fortnight. The stoppages are due to start at Fiona Stanley Hospital on Wednesday and will be staggered across 12 public hospitals as part of the union's escalating dispute over pay and conditions. And in the cricket, Western Australia has thrashed South Australia buying innings and 28 runs in the Sheffield Shield clash at the WACA ground. The Redbacks made 117 in their second innings. More news is coming up at 1. Helen, thank you very much for that update. It is 28 to 1. And still to come, Jason Craig, who is the Chief Marketing and Trading Officer with the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, is going to be here going through a few things. We'll have a look at the Russia-Ukraine grain deal. Now, that comes to an end on Saturday. 
What does that mean if it does come to an end, if it's not extended? What does it mean for the world? What does it mean for growers here in WA? What does it mean for prices? And we'll also have a look at the uh, contracts that are being offered here in WA, the price differences. If you've got a thought, a question, shoot it through. 0448 922 Also, just before one, off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market. And right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is with you this afternoon. And Angeline, uh, the Weather Wally has just sent this text through saying, the crazy November weather continues this coming Friday could end up being the coldest day of the entire winter in the great southern southwest. Bitterly cold, deep southerly winds. Be careful, everyone, with newly shorn sheep. That's a wrap from the Weather Wally. What do you make of that, Angeline? Good afternoon, uh, Belinda. Yes, he's absolutely right. It is going to be quite chilly by by Friday and we're expecting temperatures to drop about 8 to 12 degrees below average. Now, we're getting close to summer, but it won't feel like summer at all. Um, by, by Friday, it, it will feel very wintry. And now before that, um, we are going to see warmer weather. Uh, so there is a West Coast de- developing um, and um, it is dragging uh, warmth down the West Coast. So um, over the next couple of days, we'll generally see a Temperatures about 2 to 6 degrees above average. The so temperatures nudging 30 and then into the low 30s on Wednesday. Now, as this West Coast trough uh, starts to deepen and move inland on Wednesday, we, we have a cold front arriving as well. So a combination of those two systems is, is going to drag some instability southwards. So we are going to see the risk of isolated thunderstorms developing through the agricultural areas. Now, we're not expecting much rainfall uh, with those thunderstorms. They're generally going to be elevated and dry, but there is that risk of dry lightning from these thunderstorms. Through the agricultural areas, generally one or two millimetres, but southwest of Perth to about Albany, with that front coming through, we could see about five to ten millimetres. Once that front moves through and the West Coast uh, trough travels further inland on Thursday, there is a very uh, cold air stream following that cold front and like I said the temperatures is going to be uh, quite quite chilly both daytime and overnight temperatures and the rainfall is going to continue because there's another cold front heading our way on Friday. So on Thursday, again, through agricultural areas, just a couple of millimetres sort of southwest to about Esperance, we could see another 5 to 10 millimetres. However, Friday is going to be the wettest day for the southwest land division. Generally, we could see about 5 to 10 millimetres across that southwest patch. Now, in the north, we have been uh, experiencing a, a low-intensity heat wave, but we are also going to see increasing showers and thunderstorms across the north, so that will bring an end to those very hot temperatures in the north. In fact, by Wednesday, we are going to see showers and thunderstorms all across across much of WA. Um, but yes, uh, very chilly weather by the end of the week and wet as well. And uh, northern and eastern parts, any more details for us, Angeline, for the rest of the week? Yes, so today, not much activity. We are going to see isolated showers and thunderstorms, but those showers and thunderstorms are become are going to become more widespread through the Kimberley, the interior, and parts of the Pilbara from tomorrow. And it's possible we could see uh, some severe thunderstorms. Uh, initially, it looks like tomorrow, just over parts of the Kimberley and the interior, then spread into the, um, into the Pilbara on Wednesday. And Thursday, uh, it, it looks like the severe thunderstorms could extend all the way down to the south coast, basically east of Esperance.
And the warnings this afternoon, what's on the list, Angeline? So not a lot is happening today. It's a very beautiful spring day. So just coastal wind warnings out. Um, we're looking at uh, a strong warning for the Gascoigne, Geraldton, Lenslin and Perth coasts. Thank you, Angelina. Appreciate that. It is 23 to 1. And Richard Hudson here now taking a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, so these are from 9am on Friday right through to 9am this morning. And in the northern and eastern forecast districts, it's the same story again. The only real rain was in the Kimberley and not in many locations either. Bedford Downs Airstrip 15, Kachana 28 and Warman 6. They're the only ones at 5 mils or above. In the southwest land division forecast districts, it looks like the bulk of the rain was actually in the southern coastal. I'll get to that in a minute. But there was a tiny bit in the southwest as well. Northcliffe 5 and Walpole Forestry 8. And then, as I mentioned, the southern coastal seemed to get a fair bit. Albany 7 to 13 mils. Amalup 7. Beaumont West 11. Bremer Bay 14. Chesalon 18. Shane Beach 6. Chillin up 9. 19, sorry. Uh, Dalyup Park 18. Denbarker 14. Denmark 6. Erinair 28. Esperance 19. Gardner 42. Um, and at the Deepherd Station, 23 mils at Gardner. Hopeton had 13 to 15 mils. Inglebourne, 6. Jacob, 18. Jeremungup, 8. King River, 9. Mini Peaks, 20. Metla, 27. Mount Barker, 15. Mount Howick, 30. Munglin up, 21 to 35. Narrakup West, 6. Nyarillup, 10. Oakmarsh Farm, 26. Ongarup had between 9 and 10 mils. Ravensthorpe, 20 mils over eight days. Salmon Gums Research Station, 10. Stirling South, 6. And, uh, yep, you beat Stirling's North. Only one mil at Stirling's North. Uh, Tamar, 19. Tolina Downs, 29. The Duke, 10. Warrajarra topped it for the state with 44 mils. And Wellstead had 35. And then in the Great Southern Region, a little bit of rain. Coolin, 6. Uh, Lake Grace, 5. Lake King, 7. Magenta Dam, 5. Nyabing, 5. Um, that's at the both the GRDC and at Nyabing East. Uh, Pingrup, 9. Uh, just east of Pingrup, there was 11 mils. And Tamblup had six mils. And just before we go, Bell, there was another, can you believe this? There was another world shearing record broken right here in Western Australia over the weekend. It actually happened yesterday. This time, it was the individual eight-hour crossbred lamb shearing world record. And it was broken by Floyd Neal. So he shore 527 crossbred lambs. And he broke the previous record, which was set in 2019. That record was 524. So talk about close. Close shave, of course. Um, And the record attempt took place at the Slab Hut Grazing, just near uh, Kojanup. So that makes three world shearing records that have been broken right here in Western Australia's south in just the last three weeks. So Floyd Neal comes from New Zealand, believe it or not, and uh, currently lives in Boyot Brook, about 270 k's southeast of Perth, so near Bridgetown. Anyway, yeah, congratulations, Floyd, and to your team. You need a team to be able to secure a record like that. You did a fantastic job yesterday. Well done. Another one. Yeah, three. They just seem to keep coming at the moment. It is 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Earlier you heard that Elders Managing Director Mark Ellison has announced that he's going to be leaving the role by this time next year. Uh, He's going out in a high, just uh, recording a $163 million profit. Uh, The share price took a bit of a tumble, though, down 19.7% 
earlier on today, the last time I checked anyway. And this on the text from Robin Busselton, Elders Managing Director Mark Ellison should be our next State Agriculture Minister. Maturity, good proven business sense, walks the walk and talks the talk. We as a state could do very well with Mark at the helm. Thank you for that suggestion, Rob. Appreciate that. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It is nineteen to one. Just before the news, it went off to Mushe for the results of the cattle market, and the UN brokered grain deal between Russia and Ukraine that allows Ukraine to export grain while this war continues. That deal comes to an end on Saturday, and at this stage, it's unlikely to be extended. The future of that deal obviously has flow-on effects for the world and also grain growers here in WA. And to talk about those implications and grain prices, Jason Craig is here. He's the Chief Marketing and Trading Officer with the CBH Group, the state's main grain handler. Jason, there's only a few days left of this grain deal. What do you think are the chances of it being renewed? Well, firstly, thanks, Belinda, for having me. I think from our perspective, you know, to be honest, I don't think anyone knows what is going to happen. But I think if it isn't renewed, obviously you will see prices start to firm. Um, with In the event that Ukraine can't export any grain or it's made difficult, um, that will certainly be a, a strengthening sign for the market. Of course, if it is renewed then we'll obviously continue with the current situation and and potentially, you know, the markets will be slightly softer on that sort of news. But as we saw um, earlier this month, you know, it's very easy for Russia to pull out. And um, we saw at that time, you know, wheat prices go up 5%. Where is the grain coming from? Is it mainly coming from Ukraine while this deal has been done rather than any coming out of Russia? Well, Russia is actually the major exporter. So in October, we saw about four and a half million tonnes of wheat come out of Russia, and that's supplying most of North Africa and parts of the Middle East as well. Uh, that compared to only you know a couple of million tonnes coming out of the Ukraine, both over the border with trucks and, and rail, and also as exports as well. Right. So it's, it's, it's going to be a really a watch this space and see what happens this time uh, Saturday. Uh, and it's, I mean, even while the deal's been on, it's kind of been, it's been a bit of anxiety around whether it's, it's sort of stop-started at certain points. Without a doubt, and, you know, any sort of news of it or a hint of it stopping, as you've seen over the last few weeks, um, that certainly rallies the market very quickly as people look to try and, I guess, you know, secure supplies. And, you know, I think the the really interesting thing here is, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a uh, humanitarian issue. And, you know, if we can't or if the world can't supply parts of Africa and the Middle East, it certainly makes it very challenging. It is 16 to 1 here on the country. Our Jason Craig from the CBH Group is here. He's in charge of marketing and trading with the group. So if you want to be part of the conversation, and Jason, you are pretty popular. They're coming in thick and fast on the text. So it's 0448922604. Can we get into the contracts? Because there's a lot of um, text coming through about this. The demand yes. for the CBH contracts, it's just been running hot this season, as you'd be well aware of. And to manage that situation, you've staggered the release of prices by zones, you've introduced 200 tonne limits on contracts and the result of that is that CBH prices are only available for about five minutes and they're gone and the other marketers know this and they're not following CBH's pricing strategy. How do you think it's working? 
Oh, look, I think we're reflecting the international market and we'll continue to do that. Um, yes, we have huge grower demand and, and you know, that is, that is being seen on a daily basis and we're trying to make sure that it's evenly distributed. But when you're 40 or $50 above the competition, um, you know, there is, you know, certainly a lot of demand. I think one thing important, though, is, you know, we are committed to providing prices that do reflect the international market and will continue to do this throughout harvest and, of course, beyond. Is there any way to improve it, though? Because as Daryl says here on the text, you know, why is CBH putting out prices? Because it's nearly impossible to get a contract unless you have a broker. Yeah, I think it, it is challenging in some areas where growers have, you know, poor internet service. There's cert- certainly they've been challenged and, you know, it hasn't been easy for some of those uh, growers. And, and so we need to try and find ways to help them out, um, you know, but I think my preference is, is that we do post international prices. I guess the big question, Belinda, is why aren't others doing the same? Yeah, that is a very good question. And a lot of growers want to know the answer to that too. Is there some way of improving the system though, Jason? Because, you know, there is some suggestion that maybe if you do get a contract, if you are one of those lucky ones in that five minute window of opportunity, that then you go to the bottom of the list maybe to give others a chance. Yeah, we're certainly looking at other ways. I mean, we're also encouraging growers to use, you know, some of the platforms, e.g. Marketplace, to put grain on. Uh, They can put their tonnages and obviously their prices as well. Uh, We've got pool products like the Deferred Sales Pool opening on the 5th of December as well. So there are other alternatives. Um, But, yes, we've got to continue to work to make sure we can uh, evenly distribute the the tonnages. One frustration this season too is the colour specification for malt barley. And with all the rain around, the colour of barley has been affected and growers are being discounted heavily. Last Friday, the malt price was between $400 and $435 a tonne and the best feed price was 310 They are non-CBH prices, but it does illustrate the point. Now, industry's decided the colour specification won't be used from next season onwards and growers are wondering, you know, if that decision can be brought forward, especially considering growers are already being heavily discounted against world parity. Mm. Well, I think this is a, a Giwa question and the Giwa Barley Council, you know, they normally make a decision and they, under their terms, my understanding is they've got to give growers 12 months notice. So that's why it's going to be introduced next year. All right. Growers also want access to the grain pools, which are proving very popular because, you know, then you get a chance to share in any upside of the market. When does CBH intend to open the number two pool and when will the marketing strategy be made clear around that? Yeah, so the number two pool, uh, all growers got an email, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago now, uh, The deferred, we call it the deferred sales pool, and that opens on the 5th of December. Um, all of the details are also on our website, so that will also provide another opportunity for growers to, to sell or nominate their grain. Bill from Corrigan has text through and is saying that if CBH rewarded growers who pulled grain last year by offering them first option to the number one pool this year... Why isn't CBH rewarding cash sellers last year with first option at higher prices this year? I think it's probably a, a misnomer or a misunderstanding by by most growers, but about 90-odd percent of growers actually sell grain to CBH Marketing and Trading. So, um, you know, basically we're doing that today by offering it to all growers. 
What about incentivising growers to deliver to the Metro Grain Centre or Quinana rather than delivering to upcountry receival sites? The current incentive is a $3.80 discount off storage and handling fees and growers don't think that's enough. They think it should be closer to around $20 a tonne. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think, look, I mean, obviously growers delivering to MGC and, and also Quinana, um, operations are providing a uh, an incentive. Of course, you know, everyone has a different opinion on where that incentive should be. Um, I know from what I understand is that, you know, there are a lot of deliveries already going to MGC. So I think the incentive... Yeah, at the current level is probably working and for some growers that's just not enough and, you know, we understand that. So there's no moving, there's no flexibility in that incentive? I think that's a question for Mick Dore. Um, he's really the one providing, or CBH operations are providing the incentive. There's been a lot of talk about the hundreds of millions of dollars profit your division is about to report and how a lot of that's going to be spent on the supply chain, none of it given to growers in the form of a rebate. What's your assessment of that decision? Oh, look, I think Ben Mack probably spoke to you a couple of weeks ago on this, but you know, I just I just want to reiterate something that I said at all of the grower meetings. Um, the larger proportion of the surplus will be actually retained in marketing and trading, and that's to continue to fund all of our working capital requirements, with the remainder of it as a as a dividend up to the parent company. I, I think there's probably some misunderstanding in this respect. So most of it's going to be retained within marketing and trading? Yes, correct. Okay, so half, it'll be split half or the majority to marketing and trading? Well, you know, our annual report will come out on the 16th of December and Belinda, you know, we're still going through the audit and, it, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to quote numbers until the audit is completed and the, and the annual report and the numbers are released. Would you have preferred growers to get a rebate? Oh, it's not up to me you know, whether there's a preference or not. Uh, this was a decision made by the company and, and that's the decision that has been made. Um, remembering that at all of the grower um, forums we had, it was overwhelming that growers wanted it spent on the supply chain. But with all the debate about the decision not to provide a rebate to growers this season, is CBH going to articulate its rebate strategy so when growers sell to CBH, they know what to expect in terms of rebates? Oh, look, I'm sure over the coming months, you know, there'll be more discussion over the rebates. And I think, you know, the board and, and, and management will come out with uh, some clear terms, I guess. Uh, but at the moment, to be honest, we're really concentrating on the harvest, ensuring we can maximise returns for WA growers. This from Brett in Meriden. He's asking, what do you think of opening up the shipping slots to encourage competition for our grain? Has it had the outcome the ACCC envisaged? I, you know, I wouldn't want to comment on what the ACCC are envisaging, but certainly last year there was about 16 million odd tonnes of uh, shipping slots. There's a little bit more this year so far. And, you know, I think, you know, they're both records and, you know, obviously we always want more shipping slots. And, of course, you know, the operations team are working hard to find if there's any more opportunities for shipping slots. This, a, it, go on. 
No, no, go on. This from Nick, who, again, this is going back to the contracts, the new system that you set up yeah. for contracts this season, and he'd like to know who's getting these CBH contracts. He says, we've failed at every instance and he smells corruption. Someone is getting the contracts and they know how to play the system. Do you think it sort of favours certain people, maybe with the brokers or people who know the system better than others? Oh, look, we're monitoring the system and who's using it and, and how quickly they're accessing contracts, etc. I think in reality, people who have a faster internet service, you know, clearly are going to do better, but there's a lot of factors involved in it. Um, you know, what's your computing power, how quick you are as, you know, being able to push the button, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, there is a lot in this. And what about making improvements? Is that underway at the moment to try and fine-tune the system a bit more? Well, yes, fine-tuning the services there and and we're always looking at how we can improve it, you know, to see that we can better spread, I guess, the contracts around and make sure all growers have an opportunity and we'll continue to work on that. The difficulty we have for obvious reasons is, you know, with the, the, I guess, internet service in some areas, it is difficult, you know, for for some of those growers to access. This through from Mike too, just to wrap up this afternoon, and get good to get your thoughts on this, Jason. I'm aware of a grain broker that's been sourcing an excessive amount of load net contracts and providing them to non-client growers with an increased brokerage fee while growers continue to be unsuccessful. I finally got my first contract today for three weeks, says Mike. What do you say to that? Well, I think, you know, there's lots of rumours in the marketplace of what people are doing and we're monitoring, you know, the usage of the system and we'll continue to monitor it. But I want to rest assured with growers, if we're finding people that are not uh, meeting the terms and conditions of the, the load net system, we are, we, we are and will take action against them. So, you know, I think that's important to make sure that people understand that. Oh, really good to uh, have you on the show today. There's been a lot of talk about these contracts and the, and the pricing, yeah, so um, it was great just to be so, able to run sorry, those past Sorry, Belinda, you. I just had one other... Yeah, sorry, I just had one other thing because I think this is important for your listeners and, and, and also get an understanding. There's been a lot of talk and even on your program about $150 margins, and I just wanted to reassure growers that is actually not factual. What is and, the fact? You know, then? margins are well, well below that, and in fact, are, are less than a third of that. And I think there is a bit of a misrepresentation that is probably upsetting a lot of growers. That you know, their belief is that marketing and trading is taking one hundred and fifty dollars margins. I just want to reassure your listeners that is not true. So, what is the difference today then between the prices WA growers are getting and and what's being offered on the world? Well, I think on the world market, you know, it's basically probably anywhere between $20 and $40 is the margin probably today. But, you know, it does fluctuate. Sometimes it's a 5 and 10 and sometimes it's you know, a little bit more. But, you know, on average, it's been around that sort of area. But isn't that if you're only if you're lucky enough to get one of those uh, contracts with CBH because your prices are higher than others? We don't uh, apologise for having higher prices. We're there to be competitive in the market and reflect the international market. And, you know, yes, it is very difficult and absolutely understand the frustration some growers are having. We are trying to improve the system. But in fairness, I want to make sure that people understand that we want to maximise the value for Western Australian growers. Really good to have you on the country. Thank you, Jason. 
Thanks, Belinda. Nice to talk to you. Jason Bye-bye. Craig, he is the Chief Marketing and Trading Officer with the CBH Group. It is four to one, the markets for you shortly. First, though, in recent months, investors seem to be putting more of their money into critical minerals and less into gold, iron ore and coal. That's one of the findings of the latest PricewaterhouseCoopers Aussie Mine Report. Justin Eve is a Perth-based lead partner in the company, and he says publicly listed companies with a value of less than $10 billion are now dominated by those looking for minerals like lithium, cobalt, nickel and rare earths. What we're seeing is unprecedented demand into the energy transition. So things like batteries, electronic vehicles, in fact, all the solar farms and other renewable energy sources such as hydrogen electrolyzers, they demand a lot more of these critical minerals, putting Australia, and particularly Western Australia, in an enviable position. So this sector of the mining industry is attracting more money in market capitalisation than gold or iron ore combined. Is this an indication of a permanent change or focus for Australia's mining industries? This is a global change, and what we're seeing is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for these commodities. So I think the answer is yes and. So our core existing uh, non-critical minerals, metals and, and minerals are still very much key part of the Australian economy. So, for example, what we're seeing is a shift in the demand for all these and therefore the projects that are going to be required, not only for the mines, but also the processing facilities, is going to make a structural shift in uh, the Australian mining sector. How do critical minerals and investment in this space connect with the renewable energy technology, particularly green hydrogen production? Yeah, what we're seeing is is this sort of two parts. Of Serving the globe's energy transition is required for the minerals. Now, Australia is well endowed with the minerals that support that. So we are a provider of that net change. And then also internally, the existing mines are looking to decarbonise. And so that requires uh, things such as hydrogen, as I, as I mentioned, and changes to their energy source mix. PricewaterhouseCoopers' Justin Eve with Andrew Chounding. To the markets now, to Mewshave for the results of the cattle market. Terry Birkin is there. Hi, Terry. Can you run through the details? Hi, Belinda. Numbers are up slightly this week by 132 with 1,545 live weight and 53 calves for a total of 1,598 head. A mixed quality yarding today with a greater number of heavy steers and store steers on offer but otherwise a similar breakup of categories to last week. The market was around 10 cents weaker across most categories with the usual gallery of buyers in attendance. Local Vila steers were making from 320 cents to 650 cents and Vila heifers sold up to 518 cents per kilo. Yearling steers selling from 360 cents to 508 cents while yearling heifers sold up to 450 cents a kilo. Grown steers were selling from 334 cents to 384 cents and grown heifers sold from 280 cents to 410 cents per kilo. Lightweight cows were making 100 cents to 160 cents Medium cows selling up to 306 cents, while heavy cows returned 240 cents to 326 cents per kilo. Mature heavy bulls sold up to 270 cents per kilo. Shipping bulls from 240 cents to 460 cents for the heavier types, and up to 500 cents for the lighter weights. This has been Terry Birkin for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Reporting Service. Terry, thank you so much for going through those details. News time. ABC Radio. It's yours. Yours for a trusted source of information. Yours for reliable local news and weather. Yours, rain, hail or shine.
ABC Radio.